Action Park Media. Thank you for being here. Welcome to the National Football League's 1998 player draft. The right quarterback can change a football team's fortune. In the NFL college draft, where the teams with the worst records get the highest picks, the prospect of turning around a franchise with one top player is tantalizing. We needed a quarterback, and we had an opportunity to really pick someone special, whether it was Ryan Leifer or Peyton Manning. These are both very good athletes. They're both very big, young football players. The scouts were split 50-50. Those that supported Manning were intellectually convinced. Those that supported Leaf were emotionally convinced. Their argument was great athlete, much better athlete than Peyton Manning. Ryan Leaf was a blue chip prospect from Great Falls, Montana, who led Washington State University to its first Rose Bowl in 67 years. With the uh, first pick of the draft, the Indianapolis Colts select quarterback, University of Tennessee, Peyton Manning. Bill goes, Ryan's got a stronger arm than Peyton, but Peyton Manning is the quarterback. We had a second choice in the draft, the San Diego Chargers select quarterback, Washington State University, Ryan Leaf. You're now listening to Bust, the Ryan Leaf story. Coolest thing about Washington State was, though, was when I stepped on campus, I was like everybody else. I was the best athlete from my high school, like all of them were. And we were at the same place together. That made me feel good because I'm like, okay, you get me. And they did. They got me, right? And there was a a period of time at Washington State where I was just like everybody else. But as everything happens, and when there's a a level higher, that pedestal becomes available again. And if you get placed on it, you feel ostracized. Once you feel different than everybody, you feel unique, you know, and there's a terminal uniqueness to me that almost killed me. So we were a good team my sophomore year, but I wasn't mature enough when, when we began to struggle a little bit. My time at Washington State was difficult with school because all I wanted to do was play football. So like during the season, my grades were shit. In the off season, my grades were great. And they had to be to balance out to make me eligible. Football and, and being big man on campus kind of, that, 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 you know, that just made my ego feel good, right? I mean, because I was so, like I'm an egomaniac with the self-esteem problems, the best way to, to put it. But I treated people so, so poorly that that can never truly be the case. The fact that I was such a great player was the only way that I would get that adulation truly because when we show up to parties, me and my O-line and everything, and I just would be a dick to, to everybody and just assume girls wanted to sleep with me because I'm the star quarterback. And, and I would treat them like that. And there are girls that w- would, of course. I mean, that's just that's just how it works, right? You could be this dick and you could be this asshole, but if you had like that picture, per- like the Instagram thing, like I, t- I use that all the time. Like if you have this snapshot of what it, what it should look like, I had this really great girlfriend. Um, I looked clean cut. You know, I, I spoke well, and and so I had this this image of sorts that allowed me to get away with, continue to get away with whatever. You know, I got pulled over for a DUI one night. The cop took me in. It's it's a blip in the paper, mini DUI, where it wasn't illegal to be driving because I've been illegally drinking, but it wasn't high enough to be a real DUI. And it was a small story. There was no consequence. 
Anytime I've fucked up in my life, it was just like, that's just happened. It happened. It's entitlement and it's white privilege since what we've seen this last year go on in our country and how it's been defined. It, it literally was a white privilege of like, I can do whatever the hell I want. Guarantee you that I saw kids, that, some players that were from South Central LA that were there, you know, uh, that weren't stars on the team that messed up and were never heard from again because they got sent back home. It's the first time I've really even thought about, you know, you mentioned that. I didn't think about others still, even to this day when I thought about, what about those guys that got kicked out for doing the exact same things I did? that weren't heard from him again. That that makes me sad right now. And the guy you see in the mirror, it's what you want people to believe and see. And, and then you allow yourself to always say, like, I'm, I'm so misunderstood. You know, I'm so unique. And then I lived that forever. How could you be this great thing and still be this uh, absolute fuck up with everything else? How, how, do those, how do those two things mesh? It doesn't, it doesn't compute with me. I still have a problem seeing it, but I do understand now that just because you're a great athlete doesn't make you a good person. We see that all the time. And I think people are shocked when we see somebody file for bankruptcy, somebody get arrested for drug charge or any of that stuff. Like we're still like shocked by how is that possible? He's got everything. He's this great athlete. He's got everything. He can do this. He can do that. How is that even possible? Well, just because you're a great athlete doesn't mean you're, you're worthwhile in any, any other aspect of your life. In fact, if you've been pampered and babied and placed on a pedestal most of your life, your life skills probably fucking suck at, at anything you're supposed to, to, to deal with in an appropriate way. You can, go, you can go throw for 300 yards and, and five touchdowns like it's nothing. But if somebody uh, pulls into your parking spot and says, hey, I was here first, and you go on a fucking tirade, don't you know who I am? I'm Ryan fucking Leaf. That's my spot. Like I would walk on campus and I would try to go to class. This is before cell phones or, or, or anything, recording devices or things like that. They would show up with those freaking disposable cameras, right? We wind that shit. I'm trying to get to class and it became a thing to go to class. Like two of my old, old linemen would like walk with me and like the, the girls would be hanging out and, and hanging around and the guys, the fraternity guys would hate it. They'd be pissed and moaning. And so I always walked, I always had my own little security detail. I had these two offensive linemen. I was big man on campus, but I was the, the the quintessential, you know, 80s villain. I was Johnny Lawrence. We went to the Alamo Bowl my, my uh, freshman year, and I remember we were down in San Antonio, and a reporter, you know, they're doing, you know, they're doing bowl stories and everything like that. And I had become so frustrated with this, with not playing and going through bowl practice. I think I made a statement in an article like, like, if I don't get a real honest-to-good look in the spring to be the starter, I'm going to have to look el- – I'm probably going to have to look elsewhere. And I think Coach Price heard it and was just like, this fucking guy thinks he knows what the hell he's talking about. Watch this. Let's see if he does anything. And I just didn't work hard enough, I guess. Didn't work hard enough. Didn't become the leader because guess what? When my redshirt freshman season started, I wasn't the starter. I was the backup. And we traveled the cow. Midway through the third quarter, we have done nothing offensively. The starting quarterback, Chad Davis, comes off to the sideline. We have a wonderful offensive line coach named Lawrence Livingston, uh, and he's an African-American. And Chad says something that was racist in tone. All of a sudden, I immediately got pulled off the bench and said, you're going in. And I went in, and I, was, I wasn't prepared. 
and I was just this, like this wild colt, just flailing all over the place, like running. And, my, and and when I'd throw it, there was like Coach Price's daughter, Angie, said when she was watching it on TV, said it was the ball was thrown so hard and so fast, it looked like there was adrenaline on it. It just was like breaking people's fingers and stuff like that. And we lost. And then the fallout happened from the whole thing that happened with Davis. Davis got suspended. We play our last home game of the year against Stanford. And coach comes to me and says, Ryan, you're going to play. In I go. And I just throw for a ton. I throw three touchdowns. I throw for 284 yards. And we get beat because we're just not good enough. But it was like, oh, this is what we can do offensively. And so the next week, we're going to the University of Washington to play in the Apple Cup, our rival, our hated rival, and I'm going to start for the first time. I'm just so excited all week, and I'm prepared, and we go. And Coach Price remembers me doing this, and I remember doing this, right? There's 76,000 people, purple, right on Lake Washington. Stan shake is so loud. I come running out, and they announce, you know, our team, and I'm just, he looks over at me, and here's this 19-year-old punk kid walking out in front of 76,000 people just waving his hands like, bring it on, fuckers. Let's go. That's what we did, man. I ran a touchdown. I threw two touchdowns, and we lost on a last-second field goal. 33-30, to 30, I think. But I knew, that, I knew that, like, that was my first start, and I would, I would never not start a game there again. Then we go into my redshirt sophomore year, and I'm the starter, and we open up at Colorado against Coy Detmer, and that defense, they were number five in the country. And I talked some shit before the game about, like, you know, how we were going to walk in there and beat them. And they embarrassed us. I think we lost, like, 38 to 19 or something like that. But then we got hot. You know, we went uh, we won our next five games, went down to Arizona, got beat. And we're five and two. All we need is one more win, and we're bowl eligible, which is huge. We lost on the last second play to USC. We went down on the road to UCLA and got thumped. We go and play on the farm in Stanford, and we're leading like 14 to 13 at halftime, and then get blown out in the second half. And we got to play the Apple Cup again to go to be bowl eligible. We're five and five now, and I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing too well. I'd never really lost like this. Coach knew it. He tried to bolster me up, and he had the video crew make a highlight video for me, and. He just knew how to get me back going, right? And we played a hell of an Apple Cup, you know. They just ran over us, but we battled and battled. I think I threw for like 250 yards in the second half alone to come back. We were down 24 to 3. We came back and tie it and go to overtime. And then on the final play of overtime, I throw a ball to the corner of the end zone, and my wide receiver just, he catches it, but he just can't get one foot down, and we lose 31-24. No bowl eligibility, 5-6. and six. We have to lick our paws and our wounds and kind of go back and go, you know, who are we going to be? How are we going to do this? We had a hell of an offseason. We had a nucleus of players, a lot of seniors. We had lost a lot of close games, and I think that built something. And Coach Price used to put this, this superimposed picture of the Rose Bowl in our locker room, and it was superimposed from the blimp with Washington State in the end zone in crimson and gray because they had never been there, so it didn't exist, this picture. And it hung in our locker room so we could... It's a goal of ours, and we could visualize. And it would stay in there until we became mathematically ineligible for the Rose Bowl. And Coach Price would pull it out. And I remembered how pissed I'd get. I, I went into his office, and I would scream and holler, and i said, put that back. And he's like, Ryan, it's not an achievable goal anymore. It will go back in when it becomes that. Sure enough, as soon as that season ended, 
that poster went back up in the locker room and I made a promise like that shit's not coming down again you know and I made that a point to all my wide receivers and I said okay this is the deal we're staying here this summer in fucking Pullman Washington where no one's there wheat and cattle town and no one lives there in the summer and we're gonna go to summer school and we're gonna get up every morning and we're gonna work out and come out and throw and then I want you guys to come with me to uh, over to Moscow, Idaho, across the border, and we're going to play golf every day until it gets dark. That's what we're going to do. That's going to be our life. Either you're in or you're not. Boy, they were in, man. We work out, we train, then we go out on the field, and we throw, and we're done by like nine. We jump in my Isuzu Rodeo, me and my Fab Five, uh, my five wide receivers. We drive over to Moscow, Idaho. So we do that every day. The old linemen work their ass off. Their nickname ended up being the Fat Five, which I thought was hilarious. And then you had me, a running back named Michael Black, and a tight end named Love Jefferson. All California kids. The polls come out, the media, they have us ranked seventh to start the season. Seventh out of the ten teams. So no one, no one thought we could do a damn thing. Now they thought I was going to be decent. I was going to be a decent quarterback. I got, I got picked, I think, as preseason all-pack ten. But we were just not going to be good enough to you know, battle the likes of Washington and USC and stuff like that. So... Away we went. For the first time in, I don't know, maybe ever, Coach Price had scheduled things a little differently. We opened the season with two conference games in a row. UCLA on ABC at home and then at USC. That was to start the season. And I remember people talking about, like, this is either going to be the seen as the greatest move ever by Coach Price or the absolute worst thing he could have think of. 12.30 kickoff, national TV, ABC, Keith Jackson, Lynn Swan on the call. We go out and fucking just ball. I, I, I get tackled late in the second quarter and, like, just wreck my ankle. I have to come out for a series. My backup comes in, throws a pick. I'm like, fuck it, tape it up, let's go. Put me back in. I throw for a career record, 381 yards and three touchdowns, and we get a fourth down stop on the goal line to beat them, like, 38-35. And... It's just, it's on. And then we went to USC. We hadn't won at the Coliseum at SC in 40 years. And we go out and jump all over them, man. We're up 21-7. to Before they know it, though, they come back late in the fourth quarter. It's tied up 21-21. And then we throw what some people consider the play, a hitch. And I, I audible out because I think they're rolling into a different coverage. They roll back as we snap it. And I just then see somebody flash in front of my eyes. And I fire it in there. Kevin McKenzie, K-Mac. He reaches up with one hand, and I threw it so damn hard that he said it. He said he couldn't do anything about it. It just stuck in it, it like it went, entered his palm and just stuck there. And he just kind of grabbed it with the rest of his fingers and brought it into his chest. And then the USC defender was starting to pull him down, and our other Fab Five member Sean Mack just lights him up, blindside block. Wouldn't wouldn't be legal this day and age. Just lit him up. And off he went for about a 60-yard touchdown. And that's how we won the game, 28-21. I'm running up the Coliseum tunnel, screaming out, you know, who's the only quarterback to win at SC? And, and the beat writers heard it. And they're like, when they wrote it in their article, they're like, well, so-and-so and so-and-so. But yes, Ryan, it's been a long time. You are one of them. So we were off to, we were 2-0 in conference that no one expected us to win. So what a ton of confidence that gave us as a team. The year before when we lost all those close games I talked about, that taught us how to win these close games. It just did. If we would have eked it out and got to a bowl game, I don't think the adversity would have been enough 
for us to have the mentality with what we were about to go through that year. We're undefeated. We're ranked in the top 10, and we go down to Arizona State, and we get beat. That was hard. Inexplicably, we did some things offensively that we normally don't do. I threw for more yards than I ever... You know, Pat Tillman was on that defense uh, for Arizona State. He was defensive player of the year that year. I was offensive player of the year in the Pac-10 that year. <laughs> was he a competitor? Fun to play against. He lit me up a bunch that game. But I threw for more yards. I threw for, I think, the most yards ever in a second half in a Pac-10 game ever. Threw for 447 yards and three touchdowns. Broke the school record for touchdown passes that night. But we got beat. And now we had a loss. Every goal was still in front of us. We had Southwest Louisiana, Stanford, and Washington. If we won the next three, we're Pac-10 champions and we're going to the Rose Bowl. So our goals were still ahead of us. And Coach made very clear to us that that, our goals are still and can be realized. Southwest Louisiana comes in. We beat them 77-7. to Stanford comes in. We fight through it. I take what they give me the whole game. We get it done. We beat them 38-28. Largest crowd ever in Washington State history. 40,000. The place only held 36. There's 4,000 people standing on the hillsides and everything for that game. I threw a touchdown pass and rolled right by the Stanford sideline and pulled the Heisman pose right in front of them. you got to do it. You're a Heisman Trophy candidate. you gotta, you got to pull the pose at some point. And then came down to the Apple Cup. Hadn't won an Apple Cup. Most hated rivalry there is. I hate them. The color purple makes me sick to my stomach. I almost vomit when I see that color. we got to do it in their stadium. 12.30 ABC National TV kickoff. The 9 a.m. is Ohio State, Michigan. Michigan wins. Charles Woodson, they're going to the Rose Bowl. That's going to be our opponent. They're going to be the number one team in the country. We're going to play for the national championship, too, if we win. All week long, there was just nothing. There was nothing that got in our mind like, this isn't happening. Like, this is, it's destined. It's done. And sure enough, I mean, there was a point in that game where I was so unconscious that I completely read the wrong route and threw it to the wrong guy and zipped in a backside post for about 25 yards right on the money. Completed like nine passes in a row. It was unconscious. It was. And we lit them up. We lit them up. And when we won that game, when I took that knee to solidify the win, 67 years of futility just crumbled to the ground. We rejoiced. Everybody. That was a fucking party, man. There was so many Cougars down here. There was... There was not only the place was full, it was 110,000 people in the stadium, but there was like 50,000 people in the parking lot that couldn't get tickets that still came to Pasadena to be part of that. Because it may never happen again. And the, like a lot of them, it never happened in their lifetime. But because of what we did that year and how they recruited and the coach price, they went back like five years later. So it had been back more recently since a ton of the teams in the Pac-12 now. But I, I was still in this, you know, just college was... I was there to get a job, and that's why I was there. I wasn't there to go to school. I wasn't there to, wasn't finishing school. I was learning how to, where to put my fucking silverware, you know, when I sat. You know, I drank too much. I binge drank because it made me feel better, and I could act uh, like the big guy on campus. Do you remember the movie The Program? Did you ever see the original version when the old lineman followed the quarterback out and said, what would you do for me? Would you fucking follow me into this? Would you lay down in traffic for me? We saw it in the theaters with the real scene, and... You know, we were drinking during the whole movie, and I, when we get done, I was like, all right, what would you guys fucking do for me? Let's go. So we went out and laid out in traffic in you know, a little podunk town in Moscow, Idaho, right outside Pullman. And I think about it now. I'm like, what if somebody got killed like everybody else? I mean, what, what does that mean? So much that you can reflect on in the past, but like the bravado shit that comes with being a football player 
and especially a quarterback, it's just, it's, it's messy, man. It's messy. My best friends were my teammates. It really was. But that even got away. It, and it's always so strange to see those relationships change when you make it big, when you make it to the next level. And then like things you've never heard them say to you in person, like say, hey, why did you, you know, why were you such a dick to them last night? A year later, when you're a professional football player and you're struggling and they're looking for stories and there's an interview that's that's done and a reporter asks them the question. Now, these guys that were supposed to be your friends are like, yeah, we always fucking knew it. He treated people so shitty. And I'm just like, well, he's not lying, right? He's not lying. I did treat people like shit, but he never said anything before. He just hung out. He rolled with me through the whole process, right? So in, in, in a in extension, he treated people like shit, too, because he didn't stand up for it or anything like that. When I was up for the Heisman Trophy, they went back to my hometown and they did a poll on who my hometown thought should win the Heisman Trophy. And I fucking finished third. My mom was always like so resentful of these people. Like, we're going to fucking show them. So I, I mean, I kind of got it from her too. She cared so much about what other people thought of her, of her son because by extension that meant her as a mother. So I'm sure I found that out. The day of the Rose Bowl, the front page of the Montana paper that I'm from, like the headline was like, Brian Leaf, the, the football star Montana loves to hate. Peyton Manning decided to come back for his senior year, which was kind of unprecedented, right? I mean, most guys, when they have a chance, they go, and he was he was a senior, and uh, he chose to stay. So that meant Peyton Manning's the top quarterback out there. Now, my name had been thrown around a little bit just because of my size, my strength, and the pedigree of what Mike Price has done in, in terms of, of Drew Bledsoe and, and how he coached. And sure enough, I played so well in the first two games we beat ucla and usc and then it chatter got bigger and uh it became an inevitability mid-season with how i was playing and how just big and and then it then it became like oh my god well is ryan the first pick in the nfl draft now you know peyton you know peyton lost terribly to florida peyton's not going to be in the national championship conversation leaf is could leaf win the heisman trophy it was peyton manning's award when he decided to come back for sure it's going to be peyton i go and lead the nation in passing I'm a first-team All-American. How the hell is little Orion Lee from Great Falls, Montana at a first-team All-American when Peyton Manning's available for that? Like, how is that even possible? And then the Heisman finalist gets announced, and there's never been a Washington State finalist that goes before or since. I knew I wasn't going to win. I knew I wasn't going to win. I assumed Peyton was going to win. Charles Woodson won it. First defensive player ever to win it. Crazy. So the Heisman Trophy is the, the coolest thing that's ever, that's uh, I've ever been a part of. I think I'm the only Montana ever to be a Heisman finalist, too. I'd have to look that one up. I would assume that's the case. That's crazy, too. So there was never a trailblazer. So I didn't know how to do it right. Or if there's a right way. I don't have, You break fucking eggs as you go, right? You're making an omelet um, when it's the first omelet that's ever made. How the hell do you know how, you, how to make it? But what I did know is that when, when, like, when things get tough in my life, I, like, I don't handle adversity well. I don't handle failure well. Happens with relationships. Happens with confrontation. It's just who I'd always been. So, you know, that was sitting there for like the, you know, ultimately when when things got or would become as bad as they could on a public level, that was who I was going to be. I wasn't going to be a guy that stood up and said, fuck, it's my fault. I'm the problem here. I'm going to fix it. I'm the guy that points fingers and says, fuck you. I got this. I've always had it. Yeah, I wish I could have told somebody that, like, hey, I'm not that guy. I'm like this, you know, pretty much this little redneck um, hick from Montana who just wants to play sports and be liked. And uh, instead, I was like, I'm a fucking stud. You are a piece of shit. 
and I'm going to own your ass when this is all said and done. 